Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. St. Thomas Aquinas defines greed as the excessive love of or desire for money or any possession money can buy. The greedy person's attachment to wealth can wear many faces. An overflowing shopping cart or a single purchase, a stock portfolio that is aggressive or conservative, a wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures, a garage full of expensive cars or a closet jammed full of great deals. It can affect the young, the old, and everyone in between. In all of its varied expressions, however, greed is a perverted love. Its profile has disordered desire written all over it. My friends, we are continuing our series on the seven deadly sins. And as Mrs. Hashimov just introduced us, we are now going to be discussing greed, or under the better word, Laura. Avarice. Avarice. We're trying to get these old words back in the mix. So now look, you, can I say expert? You are something of an expert. <laughs> on, greed. on greed. No, well, and by, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Let me explain. Um, well, you at least, you did a chapel talk. Once I did. upon a time. I did. At, uh, at ye old high school that we work at, um, <laughs> in which you talked about this, which is a, which is a wonderful thing wonderful thing to talk about um, because most people, anecdotally, right, this is the Keller line, uh, in all his pastoring, uh, no one yeah. has come to his office and said, uh, Pastor, I suffer from the sin of greed, right? They've confessed all sorts of <laughs> oh, things to this man. man as their pastor for years and years and years. The whole, most horrible, the most whatever, but no one, he says at a famous place in one of his books, has ever said, I'm greedy. So you had this chapel talk in which you're discussing something that, at least anecdotally, no one thinks they are. Oh, man. How did yeah. you? <laughs> no Americans are greedy. How, how did you do it? It's tough. It's <laughs> tough to uh, talk about money. It's such a sensitive thing. People will get really defensive about it because Jesus's statements about money are, are tough. Um, I mean, Rebecca DeYoung says he talks, the Bible talks about money more than it talks about sexuality. And so um, suddenly we have to deal with these pretty hard statements. Um, like it is easier for a rich man to, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Like what do we do with that as people living in America in 2022 or wherever you are, listener? Mm. But um, you have you can afford the device to listen to this. So, um, <laughs> so how do we approach the story of the the rich young ruler or some of Jesus's parables about the destructive nature of money and wealth? It's um, it is fraught with all kinds of tension because it is um, such a an idol in in my heart. I think a lot of our our lives is our comfort and our wealth and the control and sense of sense of power it gives us. And it, and it seems like that's a great place for us to start. What you're saying about sort of uh, the avoidance, right? The prevalence with which it's mentioned in Scripture. And then yeah. the tacit avoidance that most people have concerning the subject. That is a remarkable thing. Christians in contemporary culture would want to talk about 
everything else, especially yeah. the most sort of niche alarmist things possible to do right. with whatever, gender, sexuality, whatever. But nobody's like, you know what the culture war we really need to fight is the culture war against greed. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. that, that doesn't show up on the agenda anywhere that you look, right? Um, or at least not typically. Um, yeah, maybe maybe a little bit at Christmas time, some people bring it up. But I've, you know, this summer I have been enjoying... Um, a dive into church history reading Justo Gonzalez's story of Christianity. So good. And man, the first three or four hundred years of the church, people were kind of obsessed with the the greed thing. Mm-hmm. And they were very much on guard against it. I mean, some of the Desert Fathers' words against money, like period, money, uh, are pretty intense. You know, statements like, if you're making a profit, you're stealing from the poor. Like, so so there's definitely an ebb and flow to the cultural discussion of it within Christianity. Um, and so I think that's hard, too, is people just get defensive and, um, and I don't know, there just seems like there's so many toes to step on. But we've got to talk about it because we can't ignore uh, a major section of Christ's teaching. Well, and that is the problem, as you say. Why are we so defensive about it? It's because we've already over-identified with it, right? Like, why would I be easily offended about you talking about that when people are willing to talk about any number of things, Mm -hmm. including any number of struggles they have, right? right? People can be very frank about so many things, but talk about what we earn, what we give away, whether or not we tithe, whether or not, and, and that's like, bye-bye. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't show up for that. That's too personal somehow. And that is the problem, right? It has become a part of what we are. And it becomes this like hidden thing that I don't think we want anyone else to see. And we don't want to be known on those terms. And, and that mm-hmm. obviously for all of us implies a great number of, of issues that are not being maybe dealt with. Um, now you again, you did a you did a, a talk. It wasn't like an hour sermon, but it was a <laughs> it was a let's think about this, right? And so you 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 brought forward some things to get our minds kind of warmed up to it a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, you you started to kind of introduce things that were provocative. Now you know you, your audience at that time was teenagers plus the faculty in the room who are like yeah (laughs) probably hit us even more than the kids um but you know you you kind of had to bring us back to that world in which this is something that needs to be sat with and talked through so Rebecca takes it in a few different areas, which we can follow. Um, but what was of interest to you as you were sort of meditating on that topic? Uh, you talked about how often Jesus talks about it, how much it's in Scripture. Yeah, well, one of the parables I focused on um, is from Luke 12. And it's when a man in the crowd asked Jesus, uh, he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And um, Jesus says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he continues with this really interesting parable that's honestly really bizarre. And you could spend many years meditating on what what he means by it, as many of his parables are. But Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. 
Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And then Jesus goes into his very famous passage, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you, you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And that, that second passage is really famous, right? We hear it all the time. Separate. Separate. So <laughs> separate. I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon in my life on that parable. Um, and so it, it asks a lot of questions, right? He, the man is a fool for having a profit and wanting to store it? like For being a responsible businessman yeah. with uh, a trust fund for his kids or I know, saving so, for college? So, it, it yeah, that, along with Jesus' comments uh, about the, the rich and the wealthy, when the rich young ruler asks him what he can do, and Jesus says, sell everything. Like, throughout Christian history... And um, even in contemporary Christian Christianity, people err on both sides, or not err, I should say, but people people are across the spectrum on their interpretation of what that means. Some people, um, like the Bruderhof or those intentional communities, like put everything they have into one common pot and live off of it minimally on farms, right? Or you have um, at the other end of this the same the same tension is seen in more progressive circles of Christianity with your Tony Campolos um, or the, um, what's his name? Sean. Oh, goodness. I'm trying to remember his name now. Shane. The, Shane Claiborne. Claiborne. Yeah. Right. So we're going to sell everything. We're going to make our own clothes. We're going to grow our own food. Right. right? And then... Um, then we also try to rationalize it in other ways of like, well, maybe that was just for a specific instance for that specific person. I don't know. It's 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 an interpretive nightmare because people uh, take it all different grounds because um, it's just such a challenging passage for how we are meant to actually interpret these big, broad claims of Christ um, in our everyday life. Well, and it must be said that in our circles, or at least, let's say, uh, I don't know, average, middle-ish, class-ish, American, Christian-ish, usually this passage is, okay, he doesn't mean that for you. Right, right. right. Look into your heart, and, and the thing that you would struggle with, it's it's like, right, you make mm-hmm. it a, sort of an existential or interiorized thing. It's not about the money. The same people who rush to explain that love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's it, it's not the love of money. Yeah. It's not money itself, Laura. It's the love of money, uh, which begs all sorts of questions. <laughs> if no one thinks they love money, do we all <laughs> love right. money? Um, right. It is amazing, though, like in church history, as you're saying, even just reading the Hustos, like how many of the most important figures in the church read that yeah. passage about the rich young ruler, did the very same thing as a part of their conversion experience. And the reason we read about them and their commitment to Christ is because they took it seriously for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it can't just be a non-starter that 
happens to be about someone mm-hmm. who has a bunch of stuff. If we have any kind of historical consciousness, and we can say we are the richest society that's ever existed in human history, and mm-hmm. all of us go anywhere else in the two-thirds world, all of us are obscenely wealthy compared to what most people live on, right? So. The excusing ourselves is usually the first move, right? You, the pastor, the church of any size, really, um, doesn't want people to, you know, get too up in arms, and so it becomes this adventure. And well, what is what is the rich thing he wants you to give up? It's probably not actually money or possessions, right? Right. Because um, that would be unreasonable. <laughs> because honestly, it's the same reason we don't want to talk about it. Because mm-hmm. if that was true for you, then why wouldn't it be true for me? Right. right. Like it reflects on me and how I'm thinking. So I need to make it not that way for you. So it doesn't have to be that way for me. Um, if we're if we're going to take it to that that personal kind of arena of all right, this is obviously an issue. Nobody wants to deal with this as an issue, but then what do we do with this kind of topic as an issue? You and I have talked about a number of things uh, in our podcasting seasoning life um, in which we've talked about uh, accumulation, optimization, self-construction. We've talked about you know how invested we are in kind of building and creating our versions of ourselves. Um, surely much of this is only possible because of money because of a certain level of wealth that we could even be uh, have the time to be interested in those kinds of projects of self-renewal and self-creation and um, it's almost like the presupposition for so many of our other issues like why do we need to fast from social media because somehow we have so much time in which to not just make food to live off, right? right? That we we have to figure out how to spend all this time in the better way we can. And um, so, if we were to take it to that personal kind of arena, um, is this a category in which it's been? I don't know, helpful for you, maybe you and Elmar, like you and people at your church, to have frank conversations about. Like, how do you get this out? Like, how do you actually start processing some of this stuff? I think it's helpful to talk it through. I know I have a number of friends who I can talk it through with. I mean, having grown up in Orange County is an interesting thing. Um, I mean, I live in an apartment and my neighbors, like I got a flyer in my in my box that was like, oh, in my mailbox that a house nearby you had sold for $14 million. <laughs> and I was like, this is, don't put this in my mailbox. This is discouraged. Like, so my neighbors are living in $14 million mansions, but I'm in my apartment and it's kind of, a, it's a very strange. So I have a couple of people in my life who we can talk pretty frankly about that with. I've gone to private school my whole life. Um, so I, I feel like I have seen it all. Um, and yet, there, I can then justify that, right, and be like, "Well, I'm not a, don't as much money as that guy, the fourteen million dollar house guy," um, and so I have to keep myself in check in that sense of I can become very easily judgmental um, and very easily uh, see myself as not a part of the problem when in reality while there is the collective call to the church, there's also Christ's individual call to me and my own awareness about money and how I spend it. So, um, yeah, Elmar and I have pretty good conversations about it. We want to actually on our to-do list is to, based on me rereading this chapter is, uh, to talk about our finances more and where we're giving and who we're giving to and how much, I mean, since getting married, 
we need to like reevaluate that charity and tithe part of our budget who's it going to does it represent where we actually are what we want to focus on so um yeah so those are conversations that this book is making me think about for sure and um i think it's always really interesting because you you want to have those conversations with people who are at the same um level as you all the time but it's helpful to actually engage in conversation with all kinds of people um just to see how people are approaching this hard command of Christ or these these demands that seem so strange for the 21st century. Well, and I love where even that your reflection just brought you because um, it seems to me, and I think this is reflected in the chapter as well, um, one of the ways to see greed or the struggle with money in your own life is precisely by looking at your level of generosity right right and and so even when me just asking you that you're like yeah we're gonna kind of see what that looks like because Uh it is like that's how you actually see it is through the lens of generosity because that is the virtue that is the the counterpose that is the opposite of of greed and that makes it much more tricky right because I, I can, like you say, find so many genuinely felt in my heart reasons like why I don't think I'm greedy. But mm. then if you look at my actual generosity of, mm-hmm. of resources, of time, of intentionality, of priority, um, all of a sudden there's less places to hide, right? If that If generosity is the only way I demonstrate that money doesn't have this grip on me, yeah. then, <laughs> then, that, then that is the starting place. And it, and it is a starting place for sure. When she talks about getting free from the grip of greed, right? She says, practically, try documenting all expenditures for a month and list them in categories, savings, food, entertainment, repairs, car expenses, etc. It's like normal budget language. Mm-hmm. If we then take a highlighter and mark the items we could have done without, how many of those purchases or the amount of money spent on them would we discover to be superfluous? Okay. I mean. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then she says to do the, do the thought experiment of like, if imagine that others had access to all of our financial records and spending habits, but knew nothing about us. What sort of judgments would they make about our character, so loves, good. our excesses and deficiencies? Well, I was like, ooh. That is terrifying. Ooh. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good because so much of the challenge of the Christian life is to not make it this shadowy private world of like, I believe certain things, right? Mm-hmm. But somehow that's other than the way I live my life. Mm-hmm. You know, Christianity in its early moments is called the way. It is a form of life that is all-inclusive, <laughs> comprehensive, right? Um, yeah. and, and we privatize it and we make it kind of this private, you know, personal feeling thing sometimes. But man alive, if someone were to do that, if they were to look at your budget, your expenses, right. your bank account, the receipts, and try to just guess what kind of person you are based on the priority of how and where your money goes, what would they be able to determine? And it, would it look any different than my non-Christian neighbor? Right. Would it be, would, could I distinguish? Um, and that's, I mean, if I say I'm living for the glory of God, but my finances don't look anybody, any different than somebody who isn't, um, that's, a, that's problematic. Yeah. Well, and so, and she, she talks about another uh, way to kind of approach this. And she says, um, quoting, I think, from Richard Foster, 
uh, where he recommends resolving to live for the next year at whatever our current level of spending is, even if our income increases. Wow. Um, which kind of goes back to the the profit robbing the poor thing, which is also, uh, you know, I'm a, a pretty uh, happy Wesleyan, and Wesley's terrifying to read on money because I think it's at 22, he figures out what he needs to live off of, and he doesn't change it for decades. Wow. And anything he makes over that, he gives away. Yeah. And it's like brass tacks straight up he figured out exactly what he needs for room board food whatever um and then that's it that's he has to answer to that amount before god anything beyond that he has to Hmm. give away um and he sets that early in his life and it's one of the most convicting things i'd ever stumbled across in his journal (laughs) you're just like oh my gosh um so the fact that we will easily and sometimes you know spouse family friends will sort of conspire with us to sort of inflate our our yeah. quality of life to expand to meet our our increased uh, resources um, but what a wonderful thing to say okay wait what is that current level or what is that essential level um, and then you know why not why would that number change if it if it doesn't have to change right um, why not see yeah. anything beyond that as an opportunity for generosity at least as a way of beginning to go to more practical places of like, how would I view this? How would I see this? Mm-hmm. That certainly is one that's always stuck out, the Wesley example, and then she mentions it here again. Yeah, and I I, I think about how she, she references Aquinas. Um, she says, Aquinas sets up greed as the opposite of generosity, except that he uses the virtue's Latin name, liberality. Hmm. Liberality comes from the same root as our word liberty, the linguistic connection gives us a hint. This virtue is about freedom, in this case, freedom from attachment to money and whatever money can buy. The liberal person's free and open attitude contrasts with the greedy person's tight-fisted grip on money as mine. And so I think of that when I think of Wesley was a pretty free guy. Mm. He was able to move, I mean, I'm assuming, I don't know as much about Wesley as you do, <laughs> but he was able to move, um, travel light, mm-hmm. um, and it brings up uh, every year I read Boethius' Constellation of Philosophy with my students, and he talks a lot about how um, the more money you have, the more you have to look after it, the more you, you need a safe to put your money in, you need a security guard to watch it, you're anxious about it. And uh, there is a real connection there between your level of freedom and the comfort or status at which you're living. The Boethius thing is such a great example, too, because he's suffering unjustly accused. He's in prison um, and he's complaining, right, mm-hmm. at a certain point about how bad fortune could befall a good person or an innocent person. Right. And Lady Philosophy's like, oh, no, bad fortune is great for the righteous person yeah. because they are able to experience the loss of what they don't need. Mm-hmm. Right. They're able to, it's like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, um, wisdom is in the house of mourning, but the mm. fool is always seeking to be at the party. Mm. Right. Like it's, it's, mm. it, he, she's like, no, no, you're in a great place right now. You're actually being blessed by losing everything um, because you're able to see with, with much more clarity and insight that those were not the things you needed to be well. Right. Um, Poor Boethius. <laughs> Poor this. But I mean, he wrote it himself. So right, right. He's yelling at himself. But yeah, I think, I mean, I always tell my students as when we're trying to talk about this, and teenagers have a really hard time with this, um, because, well, there's, I think there's just a lot there for a teenager um, trying to understand life where you don't actively pursue money as the ultimate thing. But I, I try to give them the example, and it's like, 
the source of terrible dad jokes, but yeah. like the best day of your life is the day you buy a boat and the day you sell the boat. <laughs> because you, when you, like I asked them, like does buying a yacht, is that more or less work? And they're like, well, I guess you have to be a lot more work. Cause like you have to, then you have to pay for the guy to clean the yacht and the docking fees. And the, so like the more you are investing in this status and quality of life, um, the more actually that you are required to take care of and manage and the more your attention is divided and you are not able to just focus on the simplicity of a few small things. And it might, I don't know if this is unfair, but I mean, this is an experience that has been at least described to me by those who, as the primary goal of their um, post-adolescent life was to finally purchase a house, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you get a house and you can't call anyone when <laughs> when things go wrong, right? Now you just need extra money to fix your house. <laughs> yeah. So like that goal of American life to own your own property, how can we be free if we don't have our own property? Uh, suddenly, once you actually get it, is a heck of a thing to now right. be sort of bound by and, and, and you know, paying on and, and then required for. It becomes a dominant thing. I heard somebody say once that like, the desire to own a home is one of the great sort of uh, missteps of sort of the American project, right? That that the mm-hmm. life would be much easier, freer, more flexible, adaptable, like the Wesleyan kind of vibe, um, if that wasn't a necessity for what it means to like be an adult. If that wasn't like the driving, overarching motivation of many people. Once mm. you get a career, well, now you gotta, right? There's just, there's only a few markers we have left of like how to grow up. Um, <laughs> and that certainly has hung on, even though you and I live in an area in which it's almost impossible for the average young couple <laughs> to buy a home. Um, so maybe maybe that is the bad fortune that's blessing us <laughs> yeah. um, with yeah. the realization, but. But I mean, okay, so I'll be the devil's advocate here because uh, people listening are probably wondering, well, okay, what's the, what part of like responsibility plays into this, right? Mm. Like there isn't, there's a level of maturity, um, responsibility that comes with stewarding finances well so that you can buy a home, so that you can invest in X, Y, and Z, so you can save up for your children's college. Like is... um, if you're advocating for sort of this, uh, you know, des- we all live in the desert and uh, we don't, you know, we grow our own food. Yurt. <laughs> a yurt. You get a yurt. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, I don't know, yeah, what's the, what's the role of personal responsibility and um, good stewardship within that? Okay, that, that's fair. I think Southern California might be a unique case in that it is, it is just, for most people in the middle to lower classes, it's not possible in, mm. by most metrics um, within our sort of time frame to save up independently. If we have parents or someone else who have you know help and stuff like that, great. Um, I think maybe it's the idea that um, let's say where we live should be something that the Lord sort of calls us to. Okay. And that then living there and being um, responsibly bound to that community, invested in that place, becomes, however it best to do mm. that, becomes what we need to do. But I use that as an example maybe because most people are considering leaving here because they can't 
independently owned property. Oh, interesting. So that is a reason for leaving an area, which also includes leaving a church, leaving right, leaving any number yeah. of things. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, as far as the, the practical priority list, I'm wondering if it was not at the top. Um, yeah. If that if if not being able to own a home in Southern California was not a primary concern of most people, would they still be here? Like, yeah. would it change where you commit yourself and your relationships and your heart and your life? Um, I guess maybe that's all, all, all. I wouldn't push it past that because I think if you were to live in the Midwest or like, Texas or wherever. Mm-hmm it would be belonging would be like i'm gonna stay here so i'm gonna i'm gonna we're gonna get that house and we're gonna work on that fence and we're gonna slowly Mm -hmm. you know make this place a little more beautiful right like that would be what that would look like or you would do the the move would be for different reasons right it would be for for career or for acclaim or something yeah (laughs) yeah it'd be yeah versus i think that's that's a good word and good questions for those of us who are living in those sort of markets where yeah, there's an expectation that is sort of unrealistic, um, especially if you're in certain career paths, right? Right. Uh, like, as educators. <laughs> like teaching? <laughs> as, yeah, and such. It's not, um, I could switch jobs and uh, mm-hmm. do something else, but I, I have this calling on what I'm supposed to do. So, yeah, I think that's that's a helpful word and helps us to think about culturally the messages that we're being sent where we are about money and what standard of living must be um and try within community to build a different expectation about what a life well lived looks like right i think that's very well said and she when she's giving those like how do you get free of this one of the ones that she sort of ends that section with um is tithing yeah and you know, I mean, as a pastor, you say that, and it sounds like you're like trying to lean on people so that you can make it as a pastor. But I'm just speaking for myself. Like, what, what, young people in particular, um, in my generation and younger, um, just not even anecdotally, just grow pretty, pretty <laughs> consistently, um, do not think of tithing or of giving to the church as a, as a initial priority of the paycheck of of a monthly consistent thing at all by and large uh, most churches are supported by a handful of older families right okay and and so this is one of those things that just did not get passed down or wasn't really taught that part mm. of the christian life uh, the regular giving of one's money uh, to support the work of the ministry and when she talks about she says perhaps the best advice is the oldest tithe (laughs) total renunciation of possessions is an option for some but material goods are something no one can live entirely without so for most who struggle with the excessive desire for money there is often no give it all up cold turkey cure tithing like fasting is the habitual practice of limiting our use of a good thing to regularly and continually loosen our attachment to it an attachment that builds and tightens before we are even aware of it. Doing without realigns our appreciation of the value of things, an appreciation which makes us content with less and free from slavishness. Tithing is, in an extended sense, a Sabbath from our natural tendencies to replace God with money or stuff. 
Like a Sabbath rest from working and like feasting after fasting, the habit of tithing and the generosity for which it frees us is meant to be a part of the constant rhythm of life, not a one-time obligation. She goes on to talk about tithing first um, before you wait and see if you have enough left over. And I don't know, I mean, you know, just thinking of ourselves and our own sort of generational moment, but like, if you're saving for a house, Laura, it is hard to <laughs> to regularly tithe at a yeah. consistent amount when you're like, okay, but we're going through this crunch so that we can save up during this time and we're maybe living with the grandparents or living somewhere because we're trying to save and everything like that. There's always some other circumstances that usually push um, the regular giving uh, to the Lord, to the church, to be if there's enough after the other things. And mm-hmm. so as a as a as her suggestion as a sort of a path forward to be freed or freeing yourself loosening the grip of greed um to just consistently give whether it's a 10% tither or something else um as upfront as a way of genuinely being dependent on the Lord back to the passage you got all the way to what is this life why do you worry about what you'll eat and what you'll wear where you'll live um doesn't the Lord know, and it, won't He care for these things? Mm-hmm. But that is one of those practices that tests that, or trains, or teaches us that freedom. Um, it's just not easy, right? And and I think that I'm curious whether you know there is this generational divide in tithing. I'm curious if that will pivot or not. Is that just is tithing something people do once they hit 45 or 50, <laughs> or um, or is it really like something that will that is fading away as a practice or a habit. I'm not quite sure. I'll, I'll be curious to see to see how it if we just sort of everybody sort of ages into their roles and um but I think that there's always going to be a reason not to give and be generous. Um same as there's always going to be uh not enough time to study or pray, not enough um I don't know. The church is not quite right so I'm not going to go. Like I think there's always going mm-hmm. to be some reason, but I think um, a willingness to trust God's word and to trust the system He set up. Um, he talks often about how He will abundantly provide for all our needs, and so we have to to take Him at His word on that. And and uh, I think there is an element of are you doubting His reliability and His faithfulness? Um, am I so consumed with my own control and power that I'm unwilling to sort of give up this part of the budget for this um, generosity? And so, I, yeah, I think that that's sort of the core of the issue is that maybe we don't actually believe that God is going to provide for us, that we don't actually think that he's going to look out for us in those tangible ways, um, and maybe a distrust of ourselves that we can survive without x y or z yeah i mean that issue of control i'm so glad you sort of brought us there because that idea that greed is somehow fundamentally just about the desire to control our lives and be self-sufficient and be make sure we're okay and not have to believe those passages which would render us extremely vulnerable um even helpless, um, have to regularly surrender, which is what Sabbath rhythms are supposed to help us practice, and so mm-hmm. tithing is meant to help us practice. But I think that's at the end of the day, 
even as we get older, just to ask that generational question, and more responsibilities accrue to us, if this does not become an issue that is being wrestled with, dealt with, or, or pushed against, um, there will only be deeper, uh, more far-reaching responsibilities and reasons to try to, you know, secure your children's future, to try to make sure everyone's okay, to try to, right, it's not even just you anymore. What a noble thing to be uh, panicking and anxious all the time over money when you have mm-hmm. a family, right? Like, right. And that's why I think Luke 12 is so startling, because he does what any responsible person would counsel you to do if you had an incredible windfall. You, you save it. <laughs> Hold yeah. on. Maybe next yeah. year there won't be an extra harvest this you know you don't want to assume that this is normal this is the time to stuff that stuff away and that that's that's it that is the normal wise common sense approach anyone would take and god says he's a fool because Mm -hmm. it does not provoke in him the oh i need to be generous with all of this extra profit Mm -hmm. yeah and it you know, I can try to work my way around it, but, <laughs> you know, when I hear it, like, oh, this was for that guy, or this was because he didn't believe in God. But I think, yeah, that we have to acknowledge that there is something fundamental, like when I'm reserving a portion for myself and not extending it to others, um, I'm putting myself at the sort of the center of the universe and that, like, my existence is the most important existence. Um, and I'm ignoring the fact that so much of this is outside of my control that man in that story you know he didn't provide the rain or the sun for those crops to grow you know um we are we are responsible for so little of our own success um no matter how much i try to tell myself otherwise it really so much of it is things that are only in the lord's control circumstances that he's controlled coincidences that he's provided um and so if i do believe in this sovereign god over the planet over the universe um that i have to acknowledge that when something good comes my way when the crop is double what i expected um that it's not fully on my shoulders um and that's not to say that our responsibility doesn't matter i mean i've been studying the story of joseph and he uh trusts in god continually in his imprisonment and in his suffering and he is responsible and he is dutiful and people see his character and give him more responsibility and freedom and entrust him with power. And, um, so our actions matter. Um, but I think if we sort of start to acknowledge that the, our money is our glory, um, of our own making, then we are going to be sorely disappointed, um, when it disappears or when, um, we find ourselves wanting on the other end of it. It seems to me, I mean, this is so tough, but we do want to be encouraging. We need to be able to talk about these things with people that we yeah. can just be candid with. If you're married, you know, these are the conversations you got to have with your spouse. There's mm-hmm. there's no other way. Like, it, it has to be there. If it's going to be anywhere, it should be able to be at home. Um, you know, the classic pastor line, but it's sadly true. Um, majority of divorces in America are over financial arguments. It's over finances, mm-hmm. over anxiety, over money. There's mm-hmm. no other way to put that. That has caused the, the, the bulk of divorces in this country. Um, and that is a loud, you know, bullhorn, alarm, red flag, whatever. But it also means like, man, with the people that are close to you, 
um, your pastor, people in your church, a dear friend, a spouse, um, that's where we need to be able to have these conversations because none of us, I don't think, can navigate these things very well in our little interior life. There's just there's too many ways out that we will always seek. I, I speak for myself. Um, you know, I remember my pastor saying, like, look, you have to go to the Lord and you have to ask the Lord how much you should be giving. Yeah. And then you have to give that amount that the Lord gives you and you're accountable to the Lord for that. Um, well, if I do that, I need I need to be able to have my wife and I do that so that it's a known thing. There's not some, you know, I'm going to off to the side, do this or that and the other thing. Like those relationships that are closest. We, we can go to them for prayer for so many things. But we would really encourage people to go to someone who is a fellow believer trying to grow in the Lord and say, man, let's talk about this. Like, let's just let's just not hide this thing. Let's just talk about it and mm-hmm. stop letting it be this like secret idol thing that no one wants to talk about. Let's just make it a little more normal to have right. a good, healthy conversation or conversations about this so that we can all just make a little more progress in this area and not just say, okay, on to the next <laughs> right. on to the next sin. See if that one hits me a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, and I think we have to be aware at, um, like you said, having conversations with people in our lives, in our communities, because we want to make sure that we are continuing to consider those other people, right? Like, we are going to be seasons in my life where I need help um, from others, and they will need help from me, and sometimes that's going to be financially. And so we have to, if we are ashamed to talk about finances, then we they may, or if, and then if we have set up a community where someone's self-worth or value is based on how much money they bring in, well, then they may not tell us when they're in need. Mm. Um, and then what are we doing? You know, mm. if if someone feels uncomfortable bringing to their pastor that they can't make rent, um, or that they have a car payment they can't they can't make like then then why are we even so we have to break down some of those small barriers now so when the rubber hits the road um we are able to actually act and do and we don't have these strange preconceived notions about like someone's viability is based on their income or paycheck um because otherwise it's going to be a whole tangle when the when the time comes to really act and and to help that's a really good word. I mean, they always say, right, when crisis hits, you default to your training, right? You, yeah. You do whatever it was you always did. That's what you have uh, to, to fall back on. And so there's no better time than now to start those habits, those conversations, those prayers. Um, because, yeah, life gets really hard for all of us in different seasons. Mm-hmm. And we're not supposed to hide it or go it alone. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for beginning and opening up this conversation. Uh, I think we both pray that it will lead to, to many more. Thank you, David. <laughs>